Well, I'm going to be finishing up our sermon series looking at this masterpiece of a letter, the book of Ephesians. So turn with me now to Ephesians 6, verse 17. I'll finish the letter. It's been about a six-month sermon series. I hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, we're going to gear up for Advent season next week. So Ephesians 6, verse 17, Paul wrote these words, "'Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication.'" To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything." I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, in love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Most of you know that I love sports. Talked about it last week. I'm going to talk about it again because there's one thing I love about sports, and that is this statement that is true, that defense wins championships. I heard it throughout my playing days. I hear it now, and I see it firsthand how defense will win championships. If you have a good defense, you'll prevent the other team from scoring or scoring a lot of points. And as long as you have a strong defense, you should be guaranteed at least some victories, if not a championship. At the same time, though, you need offensive weapons to help you win the game, to score and to score effectively and to score at will. Because here's the reality about defense. If you're always on defense mode, if you're always playing defense, it will wear the defense down, and eventually the offense of the other team will start scoring. Just think about football. If the defensive side or the defensive um, team is always on the field, then they're going to be worn down eventually and the opposition will eventually score on them. Now, why do I say all this? Because it's important for us to not only be on the defense against Satan, but to also be armed with weapons to be on the offensive, to be on the offense, to strike the evil one. As we've been looking at the the armor of God, we've already talked about five pieces of armor that God gives us. And all five of these pieces of armor are actually used for us to defend ourselves. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. All five of these pieces of armor that God gives us as believers are used for our protection, to defend ourselves. After all, defense wins championships. At the same time, we need some offensive weapons to be on the attack. And fortunately, Paul finishes his letter by talking about three offensive weapons that God gives us to attack Satan with. The weapons are the proclamation of God's word, prayer, and partnership with other believers. Now, first we look at this verse 17, and it's the last piece of armor that Paul wrote about that God gives us, and that is the sword of the Spirit. It's the only piece of armor that Paul wrote about where we use for the attack. 
and that is this sword of the Spirit. When, when you think about a sword, you probably, like me, thought about the long sword, where a Roman soldier would have uh, two hands on it and just slay the enemy with it. It's real heavy. This is actually not the sword that Paul was talking about. The Greek word that Paul uses here is makaiah, which means a short dagger. It's a short sword, which was very sharp on its edge, and it was used for up-close, hand-to-hand combat. It was a short dagger that every Roman soldier would have carrying with him at all times. You know, I compared the sword to that of a handgun or that of a pistol. And I know for a fact that many of you carry. After all, we are in East Tennessee. Now, you wouldn't carry a rifle or a shotgun, would you? Well, some of you might, but most of you don't because it's very noticeable. A handgun is used for you to carry at all times, to keep disclosed, but to keep with you in case you need it. Heaven forbid. Well, in the same way, a Roman soldier would always have this short dagger, this short sword with him, so that when he came close to the enemy, he could attack, and he could thrust it and kill the enemy, especially in close proximity. Paul went on to say that this is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When we think Word of God, we think of the Greek word logos, which is the written Word of God. That's not the word Paul used here in Greek. He used the word rima, which means the spoken word of God, the proclamation of God's word. It's a simple utterance of the word of God. And in order to speak the word, we've got to know the word. And Paul said here, he wrote here, he's saying, you as a believer have in your arsenal the spoken word of God to attack Satan with. And to make Satan scurry, You've got to speak it at him and to him. John Calvin said this. He said, by the word of God, the enemy himself is slain. And I guarantee when Paul wrote these words, he was thinking of Isaiah eleven four, which described Jesus saying, Jesus shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. It's through the spoken word, a simple utterance, the proclamation of the word where we can harm the enemy, Satan. And I really like what Tony Evans said. He said, Satan is allergic to scripture and we need to make him sneeze and give him the flu. So how does this all work for you and me as Christians? Well, first, in order to speak the word, we've got to know it. And so we've got to hide the word of God in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. And we really need to know the word because Satan will tempt us, as I mentioned last week, in in different ways. He'll throw different arrows at us to attack us, to make us vulnerable. So we got to be able to know the word in its proper context so that when Satan shoots his arrows at us, we can defend ourselves with that particular accusation or that particular lie or that particular temptation. So let me give you a couple examples of how this will relate to you today. Some of you may leave here today and Satan will tempt you by saying, you can lose your salvation. You keep repeating that sin over and over, God God will send you to hell because of it. What do you say to Satan? You say, Satan, Philippians 1 verse 6 tells me that I am sure of this. He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Let's say you leave here today and Satan says, well, God won't love you for that. You can lose not only your salvation, but you can lose the the love that God has for you. What do you say to Satan when he attacks you with that thought? You say, Satan, Romans 8, 38 tells me, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate me from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate me from God's love. Back off, Satan. That's what you say to him when he puts these bad thoughts in your mind that God doesn't love you anymore. Say, nothing could separate me from God's love. Darn it. Let's say that Satan begins to tempt you. And he says, oh, you need to look lustfully at that person. What do you say back to Satan? Job 31.1. Satan, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Get away from me. Get that thought out of my head. And what if Satan then tries to say, well, you're just simply worthless. You're not good enough. Then what do you say? Satan, Philippians 2.9 tells me, but I am a chosen person. I belong to a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belongs to God, that I may declare the praises of him who called me out of darkness into his wonderful, marvelous light. Get away from me, Satan. That's how it works. That's how it works. So as Satan tempts you every single day, what do you need to do? You need to speak it out loud to him. That's exactly what Jesus did. We talked about it last week, how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and what did he do three different times to Satan? He spoke three different Bible verses from the book of Deuteronomy. And guess what happened after the third time? Three strikes, you're out, Satan. It sent Satan scurrying away. That's what happens when we use the sword of the Spirit to strike Satan. When I was a kid, I, I grew up watching that, that TV show, Zorro. Zorro was that, uh, that hero that had that black mask that covered half of his face. It was kind of cheesy. But he was the master swordsman. And what did Zorro do when he would attack the enemy? He would mark his insignia, the Z, on any enemy that came across him. And he would say, I own you, enemy. And just to remind you, here's my Z. In the same way, believer, what do we need to do to Satan? With the word of God. God has armed us with a great offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. So let's use it effectively and go on attack mode. After Paul wrote about the armor of God, he then gives two other offensive weapons at the end of his letter, the closing of his letter, he, he first talked about prayer. Verse 18 to 20, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. R.A. Torrey, he said it this way about prayer. He said, the reason why others succeed is they have gained their victory on their knees long before the battle began. Kent Hughes said it this way, the Christian soldier fights on his knees. So there's four things that Paul wrote about regarding prayer here that we can use as an offensive weapon at Satan. 
the first thing he said is that we need to pray continuously or continually. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. Our prayers need to be spirit-directed, spirit-led, and they need to be done continuously throughout our lives. This doesn't mean that we pray 24-7 because after all, we have to sleep and we have to work. What Paul is saying here is we need to pray continuously in the sense that prayer should be part of our lives. It should be the flow of our lives. We should be praying throughout the day, especially when we're feeling attacked from the evil one. So here's how that can work. Before you get in the car, you might say a simple prayer, Lord, please protect me as I drive. While you're in the car, you might get cut off from somebody and say, Lord, please help me not to curse at him or her for cutting me off. When you get to work, you might pray before you go to work, Lord, help me to have a good day so I can get the job done and, 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 and be a good witness to those that I work with. When you get home, you might, you might before you go into the house, you might say, Lord, help me to be a good husband or, or wife to my, to my spouse and a good parent to my kids. Before you go to bed, you might say, Lord, thank you for a great day and, and uh, help me to get some rest and preparing for tomorrow. You see how you pray throughout the day? It doesn't have to be long, drawn-out prayers, although those are important. You can do short, simple prayers throughout the day. But the fact is, is we need to pray throughout the day. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying pray continuously. He also said to pray with variety. I like the NIV translation, which reads, praying at all times in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers and requests. There are all kinds of situations that need our prayers. If you're feeling depressed, pray. If you're tempted, pray. If you're discouraged, pray. If you're happy, pray. That's why we have all kinds of prayers in our Christian lives where we pray prayers of adoration. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. We pray prayers of confession. Lord, forgive me for, for sinning against you. We pray praise of thanksgiving. Thank you for providing for our needs. And we pray prayers of supplication. Lord, pray for Johnny, as he's going through surgery today, we, we've got to pray in variety. And, and as you know about me, as a pastor, I love to change things up. I love variety. In the same way, we need to change up our prayers. All kinds of prayers and requests. That's how we pray with variety. So we don't just pray continuously and with variety. We also pray specifically. And Paul mentioned again, with all kinds of prayers, meaning specific prayers, for a specific situations. A few years ago, when I became senior pastor, I specifically remember praying uh, for a certain house for Stephanie and me and the kids to buy. We were living in Hardin Valley, and, and once I knew I was going to be here for a little while, I said, I want to move into the town of Farragut so I can really be in, in, entrenched in this town, get our kids into the school system, and really try to reach and impact the community I pastor in. And I knew Farragut was a lot more expensive than Hardin Valley at that time, and some ways still today. I, I said, okay, Stephanie, we got to pray specifically, not just for a house, but let's pray for three things. Let's pray that it's in Farragut. Let's pray that it's in this specific price range that we can afford so we don't go house poor. Let's be smart. And let's pray for a cul-de-sac so that when we have people over, they have somewhere to park. Well, you wouldn't believe it, but as we started looking, and it took a, a little while, we only found three, <laughs> three houses in our price range of what we were looking for. And the other two had a lot of work to be done on it. And I'm not a handyman, so I said, that's out. So we're down to one house, and it's actually the house that my wife loved. I said, well, that's a win. 
As long as my wife's happy, I'm good. And the house is on a cul-de-sac, and it's three minutes away. Now, I say that because we prayed specifically. How else will you know when God answers your prayers if you don't pray specifically? If you just pray generically, how will you know when God answers your prayers? That's why God wants us to pray specifically for something. So if you have a specific need, pray for it. If you have a specific desire, pray for it. If you have something coming up, pray for it. We need to pray specifically. And that's how we can attack Satan as we pray and then as we see God providing for us and answering our prayers. The fourth way that we pray is we pray intercessory prayers. Verse 18 to 20, notice that Paul said for us to keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for who? All the saints. And then he said, please pray for me. Pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly. And then he says the word boldly again in verse 20, I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare the word boldly as I ought to speak. Two things that jump out to me in these verses about prayers of intercessory, intercessory prayers. One is we got to pray for one another. And I've realized there's really no greater encouragement than to have someone text you or send you an email or let you know that they're praying for you. Case in point, this week, I had a fellow pastor in this city. He and I had a conversation. He said, Seth, I want you to know that our church prays for Christ's covenant regularly. I said, thank you. I also had another fellow friend who said, Seth, I want you to know I pray for you every week. I said, wow, that's amazing. Those comments will stick with me for a long, long time. In the same way, what about you? Have you ever had somebody write you a text or an email saying, I just want you to know I prayed for you today? What did that do to your soul? I guarantee it encouraged you, didn't it? It lifted you up. I would encourage you as, as we pray for one another uh, to write things down and then to follow up a week or two later with that person and say, hey, how did that thing go? How did that job interview go? Or, or how did that surgery go? Or, or how did that conversation with your spouse go? Because I've been praying for you. I just want to follow up. How's that going? That's what Paul's referring to here. He's saying pray prayers of intercessory or intercession so that you pray for one another, all the saints. And then he said specifically to pray for himself. And he used the word so that he would preach boldly twice, boldly twice. Why did he do that? Now, I, I'm not in the mind of Paul, and neither are you, so we don't know. But here Paul is in prison. He's chained up to a Roman guard. And I think two things could have happened to him. One, he was discouraged and lonely, so he didn't want to speak. So maybe he just wanted to be silent. Or he could have caved into the cultural pressures of the day and said, I don't know if I should say these words because it will be offensive and it will make things worse for me as I'm in chains already. That might have been the case for him. So he asked his fellow friends who were Christians to pray specifically that he would preach and teach with boldness. In the same way, as your pastor, I'm asking you to pray for me. Pray that I won't cave into the cultural pressures of the day and pray that I won't remain silent, but pray that I'll preach and teach boldly. I ask the same for our other pastors of this church and our elders who teach and lead small groups faithfully. 
please pray for, our, for your leaders, for our leaders, that they will preach with boldness and not cave into the cultural pressures of the day and not remain silent because they're afraid they're going to step on toes. Unfortunately, it seems like once a month now we hear about a prominent Christian pastor or leader that falls and they're caving into cultural pressures. I urge you and ask you, please pray that I don't fall into that trap, that our other pastors and elders won't either. We need your prayers, just as Paul needed the prayers of his friends in Ephesus. Prayer is, when used effectively, is a great mechanism to hurt Satan. John MacArthur said, prayer is the spiritual air that the soldier of Christ breathes. So two offensive weapons we've talked about thus far, the proclamation of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and also prayer. And the third weapon that Paul wrote about to conclude his letter is that of partnership. Verse eight, verse 21 and 22. So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Whenever you read Paul's letters, you get to the end of it and you almost read it quickly because you see all these names and you're wondering, what does this have to do with me and who are these people? Well, Tychicus is mentioned four times and he's, he's mentioned as a devoted follower and a faithful friend to Paul. We know in Acts chapter 13 that he met Paul probably in Ephesus, and that's where Tychicus became a believer in Christ. Paul probably led him to the Lord. And after he led Tychicus to faith in Christ, Tychicus pretty much was Paul's right-hand man in many, many ways. He was with Paul in Rome when he wrote these letters, and he was Paul's courier in the sense that he would deliver letters to churches. He delivered the letter of Ephesians, of Colossians, and of Philemon. Tychicus was the real deal. But I bring this up because Paul, he valued that of team ministry. He didn't do things as a, as a solo act, but instead he knew to be effective, he needed others to not only encourage him, but to make a bigger impact. So he constantly surrounded himself with other believers who were like-minded so that they could have more of an impact around the region. I was reading Romans this week in my devotions. At the end of Romans chapter 16, you have a list of like 12 names of men and women that Paul just put a, put a point to just thank them for what they did and who they were. Paul valued teamwork. He valued partnership. And he knew that to attack Satan, he needed others to help him in the battle. In military terms, in the Air Force, we say, never leave an airman behind. We say, you got to have a wingman with you or a battle buddy. Paul is saying it's important for Christians to have a battle buddy as we fight Satan. So I'm going to bring it to you again. Let me ask you this question. Do you have one other friend, at least one, maybe many, but at least one friend that you're fighting Satan with? Do you? And it can't be your spouse. So men... Do you have another man in your life that you can share your life's struggles with? Women, do you have another woman in your life that you can share the battle with? You need it. You need it. And I just encourage you, if you don't 
Men, if you don't have another guy friend, ladies, if you don't have another girlfriend, find one this year. Make it your aim and your goal to find at least one friend in this church or another believer in the community that you can see regularly to pray with, to look at scripture over, and to hold each other accountable. Because if we don't have another friend that can do those things, we will cave in to the temptations of Satan and we'll get beat up and our defenses will get weakened. So please make sure we have a lot of opportunities here at the church that you can get involved in. Jump into a Sunday school class, a small group, a prayer group, a Bible study. We've got multiple opportunities for you. Just jump in. And if one doesn't suit your fancy, go to another one. We got plenty. But just make it your aim to try to find one person that you can share your life with. And it can't be your spouse. Keep that in mind when it comes to partnership. Now, this uh, past week, I was learning something about starling murmurations. <laughs> you might wonder, what in the world? But a murmuration is when thousands of birds gather together, and it happens around this season, this time of year when it gets colder. And it's beautiful when you see thousands of birds in sync together, and they'll go in one direction and, and to another. Why do they do it? Well, there's three reasons why you have these thousands of birds create a murmuration. The first and biggest reason is their strength in numbers. And the more birds there are, the less likely they'll be attacked from a falcon. The other reasons, though, are it keeps them warm in a cold season. And they also share critical information with one another about feeding sites, about where to go and get food for the winter. I bring this up because when I talk about partnership, it's critical for us as a church body, not just to have one individual friend, but to also have each other's backs here in this church and say, this is my family. And there is strength in numbers. And as we are together in this fight against Satan and against the world and our own flesh, we can take care of one another. And the stronger our defense... <laughs> the less likely Satan will be able to get to us. We'll also be able to share critical information with one another so that we are provided for and we are protected. We can learn a lot from these birds, can't we? Well, Paul mentioned here three things. Offensive weapons, the weapon of proclamation of God's word, the weapon of prayer, and the weapon of partnership. Now, at the end of this letter, I have found this very interesting. Paul normally concludes the letter with a benediction, and it's beautifully written, Ephesians 6, 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The NIV translates grace to all who love our Jesus Christ with an undying love. At the end of this masterpiece letter that you and I have talked about for the last six months, Paul says, I'm giving you a blessing and I'm giving you a word of encouragement that you will keep your love for Jesus alive, that it will be undying, that it will be incorruptible. You know what's incredible about the history of this? Fast forward 35 years when Paul wrote this letter and the apostle John wrote the letter of Revelation. The first church that Paul wrote about in Revelation chapter 2 was the church of Ephesus. And notice 
what John, not Paul, what, notice what John said in Revelation 2. He said, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Tragic. Paul wrote this beautiful letter. Who knows how long he spent to write it through the Holy Spirit. At the end of the letter, he says, I encourage you, keep your love strong, undying, incorruptible. 35 years go by, and what happens? They didn't keep their love strong. <laughs> they did everything else right, it said in Revelation 2. They, they loved the theology that Paul wrote about. They said the theology is beautiful. They believed it. They taught it. They served one another effectively. They served the community effectively. They were doing things, though, by the motions. They forgot the most important thing that they needed to remember, and that is Jesus, loving Jesus. Why are you and I here today? Jesus, that's why. And it's so easy for us to forget that. And it's so easy for us to lo lose our love for him. You know what's tragic about the church of Ephesus? There's no longer a church of Ephesus. The city is no more. It fell apart, so there's no more church of Ephesus. The lampstand, the light of the church, burned out. Why, was, why did it burn out? Because the people burned out. They lost the love and feeling. So what about you? Are you just kind of going through the motions, saying, well, I'm at church today, we're going to do communion, then we're going to go home, and we're going to rest, and we're going to gear up for tomorrow? If that's you, I just want to encourage you to not think that way, but to be reminded of the big picture. Jesus is the big picture. Love him. Love him well. Give him your all. And say, Jesus, thank you for who you are and what you have done for me. And I can't think of a better season for us to reclaim that love and that joy that we once had for Christ when we first fell in love with him to fall in love with him to, again today in this season. And that's that season of thanksgiving. Because as we have a heart of gratitude, then that love will overflow in our hearts and in our minds. But I also can't think of a better way to express our love for him than to dine with him at this table. After all, it is a table of thanksgiving. And so if you're here and you're kind of burned out and you're just tired and and you feel like you've really lost the love you once had for Christ, let today be the day where that turns around for you. Reclaim and recapture that love for him that you once had. And let communion, this time right now, do it for you. May you be nourished by him. May you be strengthened by him. May you fall in love with him. Because that's why you're here that's why we dine at this table. That's why I preach. That's why we pray. 
Jesus is why. So please love him and love him well and let his love for you help you to love him and to love one another better.